0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.
2: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
0: This is Troy Angel, and you are listening to Revive
2: Thoughts. The psalmist says they flatter themselves in their own eyes, and so they persuade themselves that they will escape those judgments, and that makes them put far away the thoughts of the evil day.
1: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. And today, you saw the episode title, Jonathan Edwards. This is our fourth episode that we're going to listen to a Jonathan Edwards sermon. We're going back to the 1740s in the american great awakening and we got a little uh, we got a little something extra on this uh, intro don't we troy
0: yes jared longshore from the founders ministries it took us months in a way to get this set up <laughs> but uh, we have him on to ask some questions about jonathan edwards he has a lot of knowledge and a passion for him so he's gonna answer some different questions about him and i do recommend if uh, maybe after this episode or even before if you need to stop and go download them or something but check out our other episodes on jonathan edwards at this point We've done a whole lot on him, but there's a lot to say, and I think if you go
1: through and listen to them all, you'll have a very edifying experience, if nothing else. Yeah, so we're going to do a short interview segment where we're going to learn more about uh, from an expert's point of view, you know, a little peek deeper into the psyche and the life of who Jonathan Edwards was, and then uh, we'll proceed on to listening to a sermon by him.
0: All right, we are excited to have Jared Longshore on with us over from Founders Ministries. He is uh, one of the hosts on the Sword and the Trowel podcast. He does a lot of work over there. Uh, Jared, would you mind introducing yourself and just telling our audience a little bit about you if they've never heard of you before?
3: Happy to. Thanks for having me on, guys. My name is Jared Longshore. I'm the Associate Pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida. I'm the vice president of founders ministries the vice president of the recently launched institute of public theology married to my wife heather we have seven kids and uh are grateful to the lord for all that he's done in our lives and the ministry he's given us and happy to be talking to you guys
1: awesome yeah thank you so much for uh, coming on the show with us Troy and i always talk about how we love it when we have an expert on the show that uh, can really speak to things and, and understands these characters in history and moments in history much better than we do, and so it's it's exciting for us to be able to bring experts like you to our listeners like that. Uh, when we talked to you about coming on, you said you wanted to talk about Jonathan Edwards, and so I'm curious, you know, in your own personal life, what drew you to Jonathan Edwards as, as this historical figure?
3: You know, Edwards was so huge, probably... I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, of course, through John Piper's ministry, he promoted Edwards' work, and I was very much in that vein and was amazed as I began to look at Edwards' work and his diligence, his logic, his devotion, his love for the Lord, read through religious affections, and was um, greatly motivated to pursue that glorious heart religion that was also so closely tied to the intellect and careful exegesis and read the end for which God created the world. And that began to totally shape the way that I was thinking about all of creation, God as creator, the purpose of creation, uh, how our salvation fits into that and our redemption so that our affections are focused on God and Christ and um, read freedom of the will. Also, I took a class on Jonathan Edwards at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It was one of my first classes for my Masters of Divinity program before I transferred into Southern. And I had John Gerstner, who was already with the Lord. But if you know anything about Gerstner, he's got this glorious, raspy voice. It was audio lectures of John Gerstner talking to us about Jonathan Edwards and just diving headlong into freedom of the will as a first semester MDiv student. Um, I just kind of got thrown into the deep end, so have had an appreciation for him for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, he he was a profound theologian. I noticed that he really kind of hit on that side of his life, just his thoughts and the way he kind of reasoned through um, and and profoundly spoke about the faith, but one thing I really like about Jonathan Edwards, and I think we've kind of learned as we've worked with him, and we've had, this is going to be the fourth episode of him that we're having on the show, that he's more than just a theologian. He was also profoundly, uh, deeply involved with the Great Awakening as a preacher. uh, he, He did have troubles with his particular church, but he was at the forefront of that movement, but he was also you know, he wrote the diary of David Brainerd, and that was a really big deal. Uh, would would help launch almost in some ways the missionary movements that came after it. And so he's this kind of rare example of a guy who was a great thinker, but also you know he had his hand to the till, and he was really busy doing both of those things. And why do you think it is that um, it is hard to find people who are? I don't want to say. Do, it's hard to find them. It's not always so common to find somebody who's doing both. And what what do you think it is about Jonathan Edwards that made him so kind of unique in that way?
3: You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, that the 1700s then and what went on with the awakening, there was certainly not only in Edwards but in others that were involved at that time, a connection between not only doctrine and devotion, but doctrine and a longing to see the kingdom of Christ uh, manifested on earth, longing to see the conversion of those outside of Christ and to see the implications of that gospel of Jesus Christ at work in the life of individuals and in the life of a community. And that was certainly just kind of a baseline for the time of Jonathan Edwards and the way that society itself was set up. But his time, you know, writing a faithful narrative, um, really does signal something to us. You know, you wonder, would our are, are pastors incline that way now? Would they would they take the time to actually detail the conversion of two people and to talk about the way that God is at work and to guard against the extravagancies that were being um, propagated at that time, but also to rebuke this kind of ossified orthodoxy, this um, sense of uh, we have the Word of God, but we we know that, um, these things going on where people are acting even in abnormal ways, but claiming Christ must not be true because of the strange occurrences that are happening. So Edwards lived out his doctrine. He trusted the Lord. He took God at his word, and he was uh, serious about seeing that word believed in all of life. And, um, we have a lot to learn there. There has been a way that we've kind of broken that off in our day, where perhaps we we can get serious about the doctrine, and we can even get serious about the devotion from a personal um, kind of pietism standpoint, but to say, what is it going to look like to see the kingdom of God that has come with the coming of Christ? What is it going to look like to see that manifest right here in the city in which I live, the place in which I um, go about my ministry?
1: Yeah, yeah, neat uh sinners in the hand of an angry God is you know by far his most notable, most recognized sermon of all time and this is our fourth sermon that we're running on revived thoughts from Jonathan Edwards, and so I'm curious what' are your thoughts on uh, you know you I've I've heard people say that Jonathan Edwards is so much more than sinners in, of inha- sinners in the hands of an angry God um what are your thoughts on that statement do you do you feel like? Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is a good representation of who Jonathan Edwards was in his preaching style and his content or do you feel like there's more to him?
3: Well, there's certainly more to him in the sense that, you know, he he um he gets marked with that sermon because of modern sensibilities and looking back, it it was also a great sermon and worthy of um worthy of people focusing on it, but you know, modern man goes. How could a man stand in the pulpit and preach a sermon called "sinners in the hands of an angry God"? How unloving! That's not evangelistic, brother. You're going to drive people away from Christ. You can't speak this way. You can't preach a whole sermon. Maybe you can kind of address that. Certainly, I mean, we're still believing the doctrine of hell, so you can address it, but don't don't drive this whole um, this whole sermon in that direction. So it it rakes against. Uh, modern sensibilities, secular sensibilities, and it really stands out. And perhaps I don't know, but people that would say, "Well, Edwards is so much more than that," might I could, I, could, I wouldn't be surprised if there were many uh, ministers today who would want to apologize to their unbelieving friends and even to other Christians uh, for Jonathan Edwards preaching such a sermon that he would that he would uh, offend people by speaking the way that he did in that sermon about. Uh, people being sinners in the hands of an angry God. So he is certainly more because he published you know, profusely and went about a glorious ministry during the awakening. But um, but that was um, a standard kind of way of approaching it, you know, in the way that he went about that sermon. So I think you've kind of got a both-and thing going mm-hmm. on there. It kind of depends on how modern people are talking about him.
1: Yeah, do you, think, do you think it is... His best sermon, and do you think it is like, you know, it's this is it standing the test in time, or do you think there's other factors that contributed towards it being the most memorable of of his preaching career? Uh, that's just, I, I don't know. This isn't a gotcha. Like,
0: Jerry Longshore says no, best certain. That's not what we're saying. I'm just curious. <laughs> you know,
1: sometimes they're just like, this is actually just remembered because it happened to be writ- published in this specific mm-hmm. book or something like that. Um, but I know he wrote a lot and he preached a lot, but um, it might just be a really good sermon that people happen to, it, it just stuck with people more than others did. And
0: that's kind of the camp I fall in. But uh. Yeah,
3: you know, I don't know. I mean, he published so much, I I can't even sure. begin to say that I have read all of Jonathan Edward's sermons, you know, so I don't I think it's I think it's I certainly think it's stuck with us because of how direct it is about the reality of hell and the reality of a God who is wrathful against Mm. sin and against the sinner. So um to speak that way, especially now, is is just insane. I mean people don't it feels archaic, uh, even to conservative reform Christians to uh, preach a sermon like that, I doubt, I, I seriously doubt that many people are in a church where they've heard a whole sermon that that was on the wrath of God, that was direct in the way that Edwards did it. Now, I, I don't know how that it was terribly uncommon back then, but I think it's, that's that's one of the reasons um, that it has stuck with us because of kind of where we are at hmm. it, it hmm. objectively for him it it certainly had a staying power when he delivered it it's a glorious sermon but you have both of those things going on a very good sermon um and then our inability to reproduce it today because of some of our own proclivities
1: yeah i i, I like the the thought the concept that the popularity of sinners in the hands is maybe more of a commentary on where we're at as modern-day Americans yeah. more so than, you know, where he was at when he wrote it. That's, that's neat to think about.
0: When I think, too, I'll add this in here. With revived Thoughts, when we're trying to bring all these great sermons back from history, a lot of times, because the sermons that we end up we end up going with and the sermons that people respond to are these ones kind of like sinners in the hands of an angry god that are just telling that almost ultimately basic truth that we're all, all sinful life is short are you right with god those you know, we had a sermon called you know five minutes after death we've had the last judgment and those sermons like that even though we do many of them those are almost always the ones where people respond to like "Ooh, that was one i needed to hear and so i wonder if just because sinners in the hand, hands of an angry god does that so well it just stands that test of time in people's thoughts. I'm not sure, uh, but I was gonna move to the next question here. You had an article that I liked, and it was a, it was not, it was about six to eight months ago or so that you you published it over there at Founders. Um, it, revelation, reason, and Christian duty to government. I think it's a good one. People should read it, th- see what they think about it. But um, you mentioned Jonathan Edwards in that article and kind of talked about him as you were doing that. So do you? I know it's a bit of a longer one, but do you mind kind of? maybe providing some of the thoughts you had in there that you would want people to kind of take away from it. Cause I thought it was a really interesting article.
3: Absolutely. Edwards was so helpful on this. He's got a little phrase and you have to read the article at founders.org. I can't remember exactly where it is. In we'll his put words. the link up
0: in the, uh, in the description in the so people notes. can find so, yeah. it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. He, but he says that um, reason is the judge, but not the rule by which we judge and that little phrase can help you understand reason and revelation reason. It is a faculty of humanity and we indeed have it. And it is, it is a judge. We are making determinations and we're doing that according to reason. Uh, But it's not the rule by which we judge. A judge actually has to have a rule has to have a standard. And the rule is revelation. The rule is what God has revealed uh, both in special revelation and general revelation. And I believe one of our major problems if not the major problem with the way that even Christians are thinking about their lives today and civil government um, today, but really even broader and bigger than civil government all of life is we have somehow elevated reason to be a co-ruler with revelation. And uh, you know, the fullest example of this is Jefferson's Bible where he cut out parts of the Bible and you just say, well, I'm putting my reason. I don't like that. I'm going to take that out. And I don't think people would go that far. A lot of conservative Christians won't go that far, but they have yet to understand that revelation is God speaking. It is It is his voice. It is his, you know, he spoke the world into existence, and God said, let there be. And the prophets and the apostles uh, speak, and that is God's word speaking by the power of the Spirit through them. And so revelation is that very thing. It is God who is creator over all, both the church and the world and every single human being, every single bird and alligator. And he has spoken. He has revealed what man is to do. He has revealed truth. And human beings have reason that is fallen and broken, uh, subordinated to underneath that revelation. So if you were looking at it on a chart, it wouldn't be revelation, one circle, and then horizontally to it. Reason. No reason is underneath revelation, and so God reveals these things, and then we use our reason to um, to comprehend. We can comprehend these things, but then we reason from that revelation to other things. But you need a basis uh, from which to reason, and uh, we're our, our feet are firmly planted in midair right now, where man wants to say, "Well, we'll keep our reason," but they don't have any standard from which to reason. So, particularly as it relates to civil government, I mean, we just have to come back to the simple fact that the, I mean, according to Westminster Confession, according to 1689 Confession, we talk about submitting to, we talk about submitting to laws that are lawful. And, you know, what does that mean? Well, how, how do you determine whether, whether a law is lawful? You do it not by human reason. You do it by revelation. What has God revealed? What has God said? And now I can reason from that revelation to the application, to the particular circumstance. But the Word of God, the revelation of God, and by that I mean both general and special, operates as the ultimate over all of life. And Edwards understood that. He saw the danger of human reason being exalted. Charles Spurgeon saw this as well. I truly believe the same problem is going on in our day. And a lot of Christians haven't, haven't grasped that, don't even understand that's really what's going on.
0: No, I, I agree with a lot what you had to say there. I, I think that without meaning to that, I, I think, it's, like you said it well, that it's not an intentional thing. It's just that so many people think, well, I need to be able to understand it. I need to be able to think it through. I need, it needs to make sense to me. And it, it, you almost need to give yourself, not that you're just believing blindly or believing without any logic, you're just throwing yourself to the wind, but you just need to put that scriptures first. And I can understand things because scriptures first, not the reverse order. I, I liked what you said. I, I thought that that was something I definitely wanted to bring in here as we talked. I have one more question for you on my end. Uh, Jonathan Edwards has had his reputation um, come under fire due to the fact that he owned a slave. There are some people who I think um, maybe they go back through history and they sometimes find things that are wrong with people and they kind of would discredit them. I don't know if they always use honest motives but what do you say to maybe the the average person who's listening um they don't spend the whole you know all day on theology or history they don't um maybe you know this is they they hear that jonathan edwards owned a slave and they're like yeah i don't really like that i don't feel comfortable with that and maybe i'm a little concerned before i listen to sermons from that guy you know what would you say to someone in his shoes or her shoes
3: There's a lot that that person needs to do because the modern sensibilities and what is being advocated through our media and through many other sources, often through a lot of uh, evangelical Christian teaching, a lot of teaching in the Southern Baptist world is moral posturing that would try to shame those who came before us who are 10 times our betters. We ought to humble ourselves and know that there were remarkably godly people from the past that were involved in that corrupt institution that were trying to navigate it. And maybe they didn't navigate it perfectly, but it doesn't mean that there's some fire-breathing, arrogant um, racist committed to white superiority. Um, You can look back there and find many people who were, but don't, don't distance yourself from your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ unnecessarily, and make sure that you're considering a full biblical theology of the institution of slavery and understanding uh, the dimensions of it in the American system that really were an abomination to God and trying to understand how people would operate within that broken system. The one in the form of the New Testament was broken itself, and Paul gives some instructions there.
0: Yeah, we I always try to say step softly on when you walk on the, the toes of giants, and I feel like a lot of times we get hung up on... Um, Maybe one aspect of a person's character. I and mean, we do a show where we bring uh, sermons and preachers back, you know, from all the different types of walks. And yes, not all of them would uh, be people that maybe modern people would love. They'd have their reasons to disqualify most of them. But we also point out that uh, we weren't there. And I, I have a good feeling that if most of us were transported back in time, maybe we wouldn't do um, even as one third of, as well as a lot of these guys that we feature do. And I think that we need to trust. Uh, that God has been working through his family a lot longer than just the past, you know, 50, 70 years, but it's a long story. Um, Joel, can you close this out?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm curious for you. Do you have any closing thoughts, anything, any other tidbits of Jonathan Edwards that you wanted to to make people aware of before we go into listening to this sermon here?
3: Yeah, well, boy, he's got so many good things to read. His freedom of the will is very involved and needs to be read. You know, slowly, carefully, but it's a wonderful work to consider um, the topic of the will. I think uh, his "In um, for Which God Created the World" is one of his best works that can really help you uh, in times like these. And then read through uh, "Charity and Its Fruits" is glorious, devotional, convicting, challenging. Um, so definitely spend some time. In charity and its fruits as well, and enjoy the uh, um, sinners in the hands of an angry God also.
1: Wonderful. Is there a place people can uh, find more work from you, or is there uh, some project or work that you want to direct people to?
3: You bet. Check out founders.org. We've got tons of things there. you got the weekly Sword in the Trial podcast. We have quarterly journal articles going up all the time, Founders Press. Tom Askell and I recently published a book called Strong and Courageous, Following Jesus Amid the Rise of America's New Religion. Uh, I added a book recently called By What Standard. Vody Bauckham's got some chapters in there. Many other men do a very good work as well. I just published a book on Proverbs called uh, Wisdom for Kings and Queens. You can get that also at founders.org. We just launched the Institute of Public Theology, which will be uh, kind of an MDiv-like uh, institution and in training, a three-year program that's really taking men That are going to be oriented more Kuyperian. They're going to be confessional, sound doctrine, but resolved to see um, God glorified on earth and to acknowledge that Jesus Christ really is king of kings, that he is above all earthly powers, and to reject some of the pietism that marks far too many of us that did not mark Jonathan Edwards. And uh, so you can go to instituteofpublictheology.org. There's a number of faculty, but Vodi Bach and myself, Tom Nettles, and Tom Askell, the founding faculty there. You can find out more information at that website.
1: Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show.
3: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated psalm 36 verse 2 in the previous verse david says that the transgression of the wicked said within his heart there is no fear of god before his eyes when he saw that the wicked went on in sin In an allowed way of wickedness, it convinced him that the wicked was not afraid of these terrible judgments, and that he was unafraid of that wrath with which God has threatened sinners. If he were afraid of these, he could never go on so securely in sin as he now does. In our text, he gives the reason why the wicked do not fear. It was a strange thing that men who enjoyed such light as they did in the land of Israel, who heard those astonishing warnings which were written in the book of the law, were not afraid to go on in sin. But the psalmist says they flatter themselves in their own eyes. They have something which they make a foundation for their encouragement, and so they persuade themselves that they will escape those judgments and that makes them put far away the thoughts of the evil day. In this manner he proceeds until his iniquity is found to be painful and hated by himself, that is, until he finds by experience that it is a more dreadful thing to sin against God and break his holy commands than he imagined. He thinks sin to be sweet and hides it as a sweet morsel under his tongue, he loves it and flatters himself in it until later he finds by experience that it is bitter as poison and wormwood. Though he thinks the act of sin to be lovely, he will find the fruit of it to be abhorrent and something he cannot endure. Proverbs 23:32. in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Wicked men generally flatter themselves with hopes of escaping punishment until it actually comes upon them. There are sinners who despair, who give up and conclude with themselves that they shall go to hell. But there are few who do not go to hell. Men go to hell every day in this country, but very few of them believe that they are in any great danger of that punishment. They go on sinning and traveling the road to the pit, but they persuade themselves that they will never fall into it. I will mention some things to prove the truth that sinners flatter themselves with the hope of escape from their punishment. For starters, it is taught in the Word of God. Beside our text you may see Deuteronomy 29:18 and 19. Beware unless there is among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I will be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of the moist and dry alike. Here it is thought that those whose hearts turn away from God generally bless themselves in their hearts, saying, We will have peace. See also Psalm 49, verses 17 and 18. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And Psalm 50, verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Second, it is very evident that sinners flatter themselves that they will escape punishment as though they should be dreadful and continual distress if they didn't. They could never live and go about it so cheerfully as they do now in their sin. Their lives would be filled with sorrow and mourning, and they would have continual uneasiness and anxiety, as much as anyone did who was constantly ill. But it is evident that they do not. It is obvious that men are careless, that they are not concerned about future punishment as they cheerfully pursue their daily activities, therefore they flatter themselves that they will not be eternally miserable in hell as is threatened in the word of God. Next, it is evident that they flatter themselves with hopes that they will escape punishment when the time comes, for they should be restrained from many of those sins in which they now live. If they feared punishment, they would not pursue sin. The psalmist says there is no fear of God in his eyes and that he flatters himself. It would be impossible for men to willfully and daily do these things if they did not encourage themselves somehow that they would escape Everlasting destruction. Now I will mention some of the ways sinners flatter themselves in their own eyes. First, some flatter themselves with a secret hope that there is no such thing as another world. They hear a great deal of preaching and a great deal of talk about hell and about eternal judgment, but those things do not seem to them to be real. They have never seen hell and therefore are ready to say to themselves, How do I know that there is such a thing as another world? When animals die, they are gone, so why should I assume anything different for myself? Perhaps all these things are nothing but the inventions of men, nothing but cunningly devised fables. These thoughts tend to rise in the minds of sinners, and the devil works to reinforce them. Such thoughts are comforting to them, Therefore, they wish them to be true. This makes them more ready to think that they are true, so that they are hardened in their sinful ways by unfaithfulness and atheistic thoughts. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. Second, some flatter themselves that death is a long way off, and that they will have an opportunity later to seek salvation. They think that, If they earnestly seek it, though it may be a while later, they will certainly obtain it. Although they have no reason to conclude that they will live long, and perhaps they do not actually believe that they will, they never think that their lives are really uncertain. And it is possible they will not live another year. Although they do not completely believe that they will live to old age, or even know if they will make it to middle age, They secretly flatter themselves with the idea. They are so disposed to believe it that they act on it and take the risk. Men unreasonably believe things will be as they choose them to be in the future. The desire of men to have it their way is the principal thing that makes them believe it. However, there are several other things which they use as arguments to flatter themselves. They may think within themselves that since they are currently healthy or young, and that both they and others pray for them to have a long life, so they are not likely to be removed by death soon. If they live many years, they think it is likely that they will be converted before they die, so they expect later to have more convenient opportunities to become converted than do now. Third, some flatter themselves that they lead moral and proper lives, and therefore think that they will not be damned. They think to themselves that they do not live in any vices, that they take care to wrong no one, and are just and honest dealers, that they are not addicted to hard drinking, to uncleanness, or even to bad language. They keep the Sabbath religiously, constantly attend public worship, and maintain the worship of God in their families. Therefore... They hope that God will not cast them into hell. They see no reason why God should be so angry with them as they are so orderly and regular in their walk. They do not believe that they have done enough to anger him to that degree. And if they have angered him, they imagine they have also done a great deal to pacify him. If they are not yet converted, and it is necessary that they should experience any other conversion in order to their salvation. They hope that their orderly and strict lives will move God to give them converting grace. They hope that surely God will prevent those that live as they do from hell, and so they flatter themselves, as we read in Luke 18, verse 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Fourth, some take the advantages of life under which they currently live as an occasion of self-flattery. They flatter themselves because they live in a place where the gospel is powerfully preached and among a religious people, where many have been converted already, and they think that it will be much easier for them to be saved on that account. They abuse the grace of God to their destruction. They do that, what the scriptures call, despising the riches of God's goodness. Romans two four, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Some flatter themselves because they are born of godly parents who are dear to God and have often and earnestly prayed for them. They hope that their prayers will be heard, and that encourages them to go on in the way of neglecting their souls. The Jews had great dependence upon this, that they were the children of Abraham. In John 8.33, they make the boast, We are the offspring of Abraham, in verse 39. Abraham is our father. Some flatter themselves with their own intentions. They intend to neglect themselves and give themselves autonomy for a while longer and then to reform. Though now they neglect their souls and are going on in sin, but they intend before long to repent of their sins and to seek God. They hear that those who earnestly seek God will find him, and they intend to do so. They plan to seek with a great deal of earnestness. They are told that there are many who seek to enter the kingdom of heaven who will not be able, but they intend not only to seek, but to strive. However, for now, they keep themselves in their ease, sloth, and pleasure, thinking only of earthly things. Or if they should become seriously ill and draw near to the grave, before that time which they have laid out in their minds for reformation, they think of how earnestly they would pray and cry to God for mercy. As they hear God as a merciful God who takes no delight in the death of sinners, they flatter themselves that they will move God to have pity on them. There are many who are sinners and who know themselves to be sinners who do not encourage themselves with the intention of future repentance but few who do not flatter themselves that they will earnestly plan to seek God sometime in the future. Hell is full of good intenders who never prove to be true performers. Sixth, there are some who flatter themselves that they do a great deal for their salvation and hope they will obtain it when they neither do what they should nor Are they in any likely way to be converted? They they think they are striving when they neglect many moral duties. There are many who are concerned, seeking, and do many things, and think that they will enter the kingdom of God. But there is great danger that they will prove to be some of the foolish virgins without oil in their vessels. Seventh, some hope in their strivings to obtain salvation for themselves. They imagine that they will develop sorrow and repentance of sin and love towards God and Jesus Christ. Their striving is not so much an earnest seeking to God as a striving to do themselves the work of God. Many who are now seeking have this belief. They labor and reach and pray and hear sermons and meet with others in hopes of making themselves holy and of working in themselves holy desires. Many who only plan to turn to God later tend to think that it is an easy thing to be converted. And that it is a thing which will be in their own power when they set themselves to it. Eighth, some sinners flatter themselves that they are already converted. They sit down and rest in a false hope persuading themselves that all their sins are pardoned, and that God loves them, and that they will go to heaven when they die, and that they need not trouble themselves any more, Revelation 3.17 For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Sinners generally go on flattering themselves in these ways, until their punishment actually overtakes them. And these are the baits by which Satan catches souls and draws them into his snare. It is self flatteries like these that keep men from seeing what danger they are in and that make them go on in the way they are in as a bird rushes into a snare, for he does not know that it will cost him his life. Those that flatter themselves with hopes. Living much longer in the world, very commonly continue to do so until death comes. Death comes upon them when they do not expect it. They look upon it as a great way off, when there is only a step between them and death. They have no thought of dying at that time, nor at any time near it. When they were young, they planned to live a good while longer, and they happened to live until middle age, they will still maintain the same thought that they are not near death. Men often have a dependence on their own righteousness, and as long as they live, are never brought off of it. Many uphold themselves with their own intentions until all their prospects are dashed to pieces by death. They put off the work which they have to do for a time, and when that time comes, they they put it off to another time until death which cannot be put off, overtakes them. There are many also that hold a false hope, a belief that they belong to God, and even without the marks and the signs which are given to a true convert, they will never be persuaded to let go of their hope until it is torn from them by death. Men commonly make themselves comfortable until hellfire makes them uncomfortable everlasting ruin comes upon them as a snare and all their hopes are at once cut off and turned into everlasting despair 1thessalonians chapter 5 verse 3 while people are saying there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape Consequently, we learn one reason why there are few saved, and why so many perish from under the gospel. All men know that they must die. And all that sit under the light of the gospel have been told many times after this that there is another world, that there are two states in that other world, a state of eternal happiness and a state of eternal misery. They have been told that there is only one way of escaping the misery and gaining the blessed eternity, which is through faith in Christ. And that only in this life is there opportunity of gaining Christ. But men would rather flatter themselves on the ways which we have mentioned, that there are few that can take care of their salvation in this life. They may be concerned about their souls, but they flatter themselves with one thing or another so that they are kept steadily going down the broad way to destruction. This is why the startling truths of Scripture and powerful sermons make no more impression on men. It is a surprising thing. That God's denunciation of eternal misery and His threatening of casting sinners into the lake that burns with fire for ever and ever does not affect them; it does not startle them. But the truth is, they flatter themselves that they will escape this dreadful misery, though multitudes of others will not. They do not take these threats and believe it applies to themselves. They seem to think that they do not belong. To the sinners. How many are there in this congregation? For all the awakening sermons they have heard are secure in sin. And who, sensing that they are in a Christless condition and are still going on in sin, intend to go on to heaven. They expect that by some method or other they will arrive there. They are told that God is very angry with them, but they think that God is a very merciful God, and they will be able to pacify him. If they are told how uncertain life is, that does not awaken them, because they flatter themselves with long life. If they are told how dangerous it is to delay, they promise themselves that they will later engage in it with more earnestness than others, and so gain the salvation of their souls. Others, when they are told that many seek who will not be able to obtain it, think that they, having done so much for their salvation, will not have it denied. Let every sinner examine himself, whether he flatters himself in some of those ways which have been mentioned. What is it in your own minds which makes you think it is safe for you to delay turning to God? What is it that encourages you to delay this necessary work? Is it that you hope that there is no such state as heaven or hell, and have a suspicion that there is no God? Is it this that makes you feel secure? Or is it that you believe that you will have enough opportunity a great while from now to consider such things? Do you tend to wait for a more convenient season? And are you persuaded that God will call to you then, after you have so long turned a deaf ear to His commands and His grace? Are you encouraged to commit sin because you plan to repent of it? Are you encouraged by the mercy of God to be His enemies? And do you still resolve to provoke Him to anger because you think He will be easily pacified? Or do you think your conversion is in your own power and that you could turn to God whenever you please? Is it because you have been born of godly parents that you feel so secure? Do you think that what you have done in religion will make God pity you and that he won't have the heart to condemn someone who has lived an orderly life? Or do you think that you are converted already? And does that encourage you to take the liberty of sinning? Or do you feel secure? because you are so stupid as to think nothing about these things. Certainly, it must be one or more of these things which keeps you in your security and encourages you to go on in sin. Examine, therefore, and see which one it is. By the text and the doctrine, be persuaded to cease flattering yourselves in your own eyes. You are now informed that those who do as you do continue doing so until their punishment actually comes upon them. By this, be convinced of the vanity of all such flatteries. Be afraid of that which you are sure is the devil's bait, for in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Proverbs one seventeen. You are not only told in the scriptures that sinners are generally charmed into hell, but your own reason may show you this. For countless other sinners had as much ground to hope to escape punishment as you, and it is evident that they generally do hope to escape. Men under the gospel almost universally think they will not go to hell. If it were otherwise, they could have no peace or comfort in the world. Yet, multitudes have reason to believe they will go down from under the preaching of the gospel to the pit of destruction. Now, this is surely enough to convince any sober prudent person of the folly of their flattery, and the folly of everyone that does not immediately set about his great work with all his might. If you could have access to the damned, you would hear many of them curse themselves for flattering themselves while they lived in this world, and you would have the same doctrine preached to you by their wailings and yellings, which is now preached to you from the pulpit. If your temptation To false security is unbelief in the fundamental doctrines of religion, such as the being of God, of another world, of an eternal judgment. Consider that though this makes you feel secure at present, it will not do so forever. It will not stand by you when you come to die. The fool says in health there is no God, but when his time comes to die, he cannot find rest in any such idea then he is generally so convicted by his own conscience that there is a God that he is in dreadful fear of his eternal wrath. It is folly to flatter yourselves with any unbelief now which you will not then be able to hold on to. If you depend upon a long life, remember how many have died who have depended upon the same thing and have had as much reason to depend upon it as you. Is it because you have outwardly and orderly life that you think you will be saved? How unreasonable is it to assume that God should be moved by those actions which he knows are not done from the least respect or regard to him? Is it because of your situation that you are not afraid? That you will have still some time to be converted and therefore now neglect yourselves and your spiritual interests? Were not the people of Bethsaida Chorazin and Capernaum at a greater advantage when Christ himself preached the gospel to them and performed a multitude of miracles among them. Yet, he says that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities. Do you expect you will be saved no matter how you neglect yourselves because you were born of godly parents? Hear what Christ says in Matthew three nine. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Do you flatter yourselves that you will obtain mercy, though others do not, because you intend later to seek it more earnestly than others? You deceive yourselves if you think that your intentions are better than many of those others did who are now in hell. If you think you are earnestly seeking, Consider whether or not you do not care about other things more. If you imagine that you have it in your own power to repent, you certainly must give up that imaginary idea before you can have repentance brought about in you. If you think yourselves already converted, and that encourages you to give yourselves the greater liberty in sinning, that is a certain sign that you are not converted abandon all these ways of flattering yourselves. Do not follow the devil's bait and let nothing encourage you to go on in sin, but immediately seek God with all your heart and soul and strength.
0: I love, uh, well, I don't love, maybe it's sad, it scares me, but I love that he said that Jonathan Edwards is basically like most sinful men do not think that they are in sin, or that they're any kind of danger. I have done uh, now four sermons on Jonathan Edwards. I had to recently read uh, The Diary of David Brainerd, which was edited. By Jonathan Edwards. You know, once a week we uh, do revive Devos, it comes out every day, but once a week there'll be a bit from Jonathan Edwards as well. So I've seen a lot of the stuff. i worked with a lot of his sermons, and this is a theme that you will find through a lot of them, which is that most people think that they're fine. That, that that sin, the hell, all that stuff is coming for somebody else. And that there are even many people who are sitting in the church who think, I'm okay. I there's no chance it's me. As he's talking about somebody else, I am safe. And I think it's important. Uh, that John Edwards hits this, and I think it's important for us to realize, like, no, if you aren't right with God, if your relationship is broken, if there's sin in your life, if if you have something between you and Christ, if you've never known Christ in any kind of way, never fully put your trust in him or his word, uh, then these self-flatteries as he says these ideas of you're doing okay you're not doing okay and I hope that the Lord does convict you um, I hope that the Lord you know will work on each of our hearts as we think about you know what are the ways that sin has lied to me and told me that something I'm doing that I shouldn't be doing is okay um, and let that think let that be in your life think about that this week and and pray about it don't let it just pass you by it's like that was a good sermon I'm gonna let it go now but actually consider that thought is there something in my life that I've been deceiving myself about
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Big thanks to Jared Longshore from Founders Ministry. Make sure to check out his podcast and the work that he does following the links in the description below. The sermon was narrated by Ed Bacow. Pastor Ed is a Washington State native, and he taught for 30 plus years at churches in Oregon, Washington, and Nebraska, currently in Warden, Washington. He has been serving with Warden Community Church since May of 2010.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you have not checked out our other shows here, we definitely uh, you know, want you to run over and check out Martyrs and Missionaries. It's our newest show. It's doing very well. Um, we're really excited and proud of the progress it has made telling the stories. Uh, martyrs and missionaries and sometimes both who have come before and just the work that they did you know you may have heard of the names Adniram Judson or uh, David Brainerd uh, Amy Carmichael but have you have you heard their actual stories do you know all the different things that they went through and, and I promise you too there are people on that show Asa Kent Jannings for example that you never heard of and when you hear their stories you're going to be like oh my goodness how has no one told me about this story before the, history, the rise and fall of Uh, history of Christianity in Japan parts one and two I would guarantee you you you've never heard that part two you do not know what happened to Christianity in the Japan in the 1800s and it is an incredible story it's a sad story but it is an incredible story that we as Christians need to know about so we really encourage you go check out what Elise is doing at Martyrs and Missionaries and also recommend you follow us on social media Uh, we do a church history trivia night among many things and One of the things we do is we have a segment called Name That John, and every uh time we do it we ask people to name a certain special john from history the reason i'm bringing that up is because if you look at your feed right now you'll notice that john and uh, revive thoughts the last four episodes have been by john uh jonathan edwards jc ryle john wesley john calvin
1: there's just a lot of john there's ju-
0: it's just something about it you name your kid john i say you have a half chance that that kid's in ministry someday and we're going to be talking about him so just something kind of fun there but be follow us on uh social medias and we'll be checking out uh martyrs and missionaries make sure you're subscribed and that's in your feed this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts This episode is brought to you by the in-between podcast a podcast about marriage parenting faith and everything in between
1: on the in-between podcast you will hear how to raise children that change the world
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse
1: how to not hate your in-laws
0: ways to save money for your next vacation
1: and how to use the enneagram in your relationships
0: join us Daniel
1: and Christina M
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong connected and joy-filled marriage and family.
1: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.